Last month in court, we heard two more insider witnesses. One had been requested by the defense, the other by the prosecution. And yeah, I always find these insider witnesses really, really interesting because they worked inside the system. So they, they really know how things were done and how hierarchies worked. Um, at the same time, I'm always a bit surprised when they come without lawyers like these two did. Because yeah, I mean, it's a fine line as we see in Iad's case, um, who started out as a witness and then because of something he said, uh, turned into a suspect and then, and then a defendant in court. So as most of the insider witnesses were somehow involved in the regime's doings, uh, they might have been involved in crimes or they might have been hierarchically responsible for crimes. So yeah, I think, I think it's, it's a pretty risky thing uh, for them to testify. And well, in this case, I guess nothing, uh, nothing happened to them. But um, I'll just uh, summarize their testimonies. So one of them uh, was a pilot in the army and he comes from a really influential, uh, prominent family in, in Syria, a family of army officers. And he said that he even knew Bashar al-Assad personally and he also knew Hafiz Mahlouf personally. Um, he defected six months before Anwar R did in 2012 and they had some common friends. So he assisted Anwar R with his defection. Uh, he picked him up from the Jordanian border and he organized an apartment for him and his family so they didn't have to stay in the refugee camp. And, well, I mean, they when he picked him up from the border, they were in the car together and they, they talked about certain opinions and, and the situation in Syria. And the witness remembered that Anwar R said that he wanted to defect earlier, that he didn't really agree uh, with what the regime was doing. And uh, the witness also said that Anwar R cooperated with the Jordanian Secret Service, um, provided some documents that he had brought with him, and that he helped organize a, a route, a safe route for Syrian civilians to come to Jordan. He also said that he met Anwar R a bit later again in Jordan, and that Anwar R was really scared because he had, uh, he was already afraid that the Syrian Secret Service was after him and would try to kill him uh, even in Jordan. The second witness was a secretary. He worked in Branch 285, which is uh, a branch similar to Branch 251, uh, where also people were interrogated, tortured. Uh, they had their own prison as well. And Anwar R had worked in that branch before he transferred to Branch 251. And he spent a few more months there uh, before his defection. And the defense has claimed that he was transferred back to Branch 285 as a punishment, uh, because he had helped so many prisoners and he was just, they would just put him there to, you know, put him in some un, uh, unimportant job and just to keep him out of the way. Uh, so this secretary who worked with Anwar R for quite a long time, he, uh, he, he said that, well, it didn't seem as a punishment because Anwar R still had his company car, he still had his own office, he still had a, a, an, an employee to bring him coffee and tea, just like the other officers. Um, so that part of the story wasn't really confirmed. Uh, on the other hand, this witness remembered Anwar R as being very kind and friendly. Uh, he always greeted also the low-ranking employees such as himself, which apparently other officers did not do. So... As a person, he said Anwar R was a good, a good man. 
Later in October, nothing really new happened in court. Uh, it was mostly requests by the defense for more witnesses and then arguments by the prosecution against those requests and, of course, some decisions about those requests by the court. So as soon as all that is sorted out, we will hopefully know when the final pleas are going to take place and finally when the verdict is actually going to happen. And I guess for many of us, with that verdict, this whole trial and this whole story is coming to an end. But for the defendants, the verdict is just the beginning of a whole new chapter. So listen to my colleagues Naya and Fritz talk about this in today's episode. As Syrians and the rest of the world watch closely for what could be the final weeks of the Koblenz trial, we thought of traveling with you in time and visiting, together, the future. In this podcast, we have considered the past and the present at length. But what about the future? The future of Anwar R. and Iyad A. and the type of life that awaits them after the trial and possible appeals are done, when the world is not watching anymore and a kind of normalcy starts. But what really is normal in this context? What would their life be like after five years, 10 years, 20 or more years? As much as it would take for them to get released. That is, if both get a final conviction. Lots of people are waiting for the verdict in this case now. But what then? What about their life afterward? Doesn't the story continue for the two defendants? We wanted to try to understand this ourselves, whether Anwar R and Iyad A's punishment, if they're finally convicted, stops when their prison years are served? Or does their punishment somehow continue to live on and shape the life that both will continue to lead? And by the way, just a quick pause here. When we say life after prison in these cases, it's worth mentioning that we are speaking of a theory here still. Iyad A was convicted already back in February 2021, but he decided to appeal his sentence, which means that it's not final yet, and he remains innocent until finally proven guilty. And Anwar R's case in Koblenz is ongoing, as you know, so the same goes for him as well. To understand the future situation that Anwar R and Iyad A might find themselves in, we will explore various questions in today's episode about one major topic, life after prison in Germany for non-German citizens. Our Arabic series producer Salim Salame discussed these questions with Thomas Oberhauser, who is chairman of the executive committee of the Working Group on Migration Law in the German Bar Association DAV. Thomas told us what could happen to the Branch 251 ex-officers Anwar R and Iyad A if they were indeed finally convicted for what they are accused of, crimes against humanity. When someone who doesn't have a German passport has to go to prison in Germany, a question then usually arises, which is, what will happen to their right of stay once they are released from prison? They have done something that goes against the law, and that has landed them behind bars. This is usually considered reason enough to expel them. And the authorities then make an assessment on a case-by-case basis to decide Should and can this person, in fact, be expelled or not? Usually, when it's a serious crime, like the allegations in Iyad A's and Anwar R's cases, then the decision would likely be to expel them. Upon release, they would receive an expulsion order that says, leave the country. 
But the whole thing is not as simple as it may sound. Absolutely not, because part of that assessment is the core question, what would happen to this person after being expelled to his home country? For example, in IAD-A and Anwar R's cases, they would likely face the risk of torture or even worse because of their defection and because of the testimonies that they gave before and during the trial. And according to international law and also the relevant provisions in German residence law, expelling is prohibited if there is a threat of the death penalty or considerable and concrete danger to life, health or freedom of that person. For example, the threat of torture in the home country if the individual was to be sent back there. In situations like these, there will usually be a ban to expel this person. So to quickly recap here, in Germany, when someone has asylum status, then that generally means they cannot be expelled to their home country. If an individual truthfully told their story of being in danger where they came from and as a result received asylum status, that person should normally not be able to get expelled. However, there are various scenarios in which that status could change or be taken away again. Exactly, and that's what we learned from Thomas Oberhäuser. So let's take a look at these different scenarios. Bear with me here. For example, one scenario in which a previously received asylum status could change is when the person did not tell the truth in the asylum procedure with the application. For example, if a Syrian asylum seeker changed or played down his role or involvement in crimes and the authorities then found real facts showing that they obtained the asylum status by lying about being in danger or leaving out incriminating facts, then it is likely that the status would be taken away. This is a procedure, by the way, that happens a lot in the United States, actually where the authorities use this as a tool to expel war criminals on their soil who they cannot prosecute because they don't have laws like the universal jurisdiction provisions in Germany that are being used to prosecute Anwar R and IAD-A. Now, another scenario would be that the asylum applicant was indeed fully honest during the application procedure, which got them the asylum status at first. But in all that honesty, the person admits or admitted to certain crimes. Then the authorities might decide to actually transfer their dossier from the migration and refugee authorities, where the application procedure is happening, to the justice authorities, as was the case with IAD-A. And then a criminal prosecution might follow and the German authorities can, but don't have to, withdraw the asylum status. Again, this is a, a decision-making procedure that happens on a case-by-case -case basis. But, and here it gets even more foggy, even if the authorities withdraw the asylum status from this individual, that doesn't necessarily mean that they will in fact be expelled immediately, or even ever. Because remember, there might be a ban on expulsion because of the situation that that individual might face in his home country. In practice, the state then says, you have to leave this country, but we cannot expel you ourselves because you might either be in danger if you go back to your home country or you might still have valid asylum status. 
but still, you were convicted for a serious crime. So, what happens then? Where do they go? This bizarre situation leaves a person like that with basically two options. Either they leave the country voluntarily and will then never be allowed to come back, or the second option is to remain somewhat, as the authorities would put it, quote-unquote, illegally in the country, but with the knowledge that if circumstances in their home country improved, the authorities would then go ahead and expel them eventually. So Fritz, that's the dilemma. The state would want to expel foreigners that have spent time in prison for having committed a serious crime. But the authorities can't do it in practice for the time being. But in case there is a change in the circumstances in their own home country, then they will expel them. They are in a kind of waiting position in a sort of uh, legal limbo. And in that, they are considered as so-called illegally staying in Germany. A confusing situation to find yourself in. And perhaps not entirely just, if you consider that they have already served the punishment that the court handed to them. Now, with all this knowledge, let's zoom into a case like the one of Anwar R. and Iyad A., and assume they eventually get convicted and serve time in prison. We know that Anwar R. had received asylum status before he was arrested and put on trial. We're not 100% sure what Iyad A.'s asylum status is at the moment. He had started it before his arrest, and in those interviews, he volunteered the information that actually led to his arrest. But we don't know where that procedure went, and for the time being, it, it may just be on pause. Now, looking into the future, when they eventually get released, the state will likely want to expel them because of the serious crimes they committed. That's what we just learned. But at the same time, the authorities might decide in their individual cases that it's in fact not safe to expel them. So then they won't be able to expel them for the time being. And they would find themselves in the confusing situation we described before. Plus, in Iyad A's case, there is the asylum procedure. A possible conviction will definitely not work in his favor to get asylum status. Right, and then the thing is that if they choose to go with the first option we outlined earlier and decide to leave Germany, then their only option would be to go to a third country, for example, another Arab country or any other non-European Union country. Because... Leaving Germany alone is not enough. We learned from German lawyer Thomas Oberhäuser that the expulsion order that they would get would say something like, you're not allowed to stay not just in Germany, but in the European Union. So in case they have some special links to another European country, for example, they have family living there, this country would then have to ask Germany if it agrees that this person would get permission to stay in this other country. And usually, in practice, they would refuse that. If they decide to go with the second option we described, which is to stay in Germany, they end up in that confusing limbo and waiting uh, position, the so-called illegally staying in Germany position. And this begs the question, during that time when they stay in Germany, how can they lead anything even resembling a normal life? Can they at all? Well, according to Thomas Oberhauser, they will not be able to get a residence permit in Germany, let alone start the process of naturalization to get the German passport. They also won't be allowed to work, not in Germany or elsewhere in the EU. 
they are not allowed as well to travel across borders. They can do things to try to find their way around, like learning German if they want to. That is, of course, anyone's right. And they can try to adapt, but they have no legal right to stay. In other words, it won't really benefit them, as they would be investing in something that they know will end sooner or later. This kind of life sounds very challenging, Naya. But it does not stop here yet. It turns out, despite the fact that they can't work or settle or even be free to move around, they would still need to renew their permission to stay, although it's considered staying quote-unquote illegally. How does that make sense? It is yet another one of those confusing and partly contradictory components of this entire complexity. Plus, for every such renewal to stay illegally, they even have to pay, despite the fact that, as you said before, they're not even allowed to work. So the money for paying for these renewal procedures becomes yet another challenge for them. So the challenges are really piling up here in, in, a, in a systemic way. And when we asked Thomas about this, he said that this is kind of the German authorities' way of saying, get out of Germany, we don't like you. So what about family members, like a wife, children, brothers and sisters? Are they also affected by this situation that convicted criminals would face? For example, in Iyad A and Anwar R's case, if they get convicted. And if family is not directly affected, can they and their status perhaps help them after they get released? Well, usually there is a concept that's called family reunification. That is, when there are direct family members that already reside in Germany, that's usually a reason to stay or to be invited to Germany if you live in another country and you apply for asylum. It's worth noting here, by the way, that in German law, what's considered a direct family is only husbands, wives, and children under the age of 16. But in the situation which we are discussing in this episode, core family members related to Anwar R and Iyad A, who live in Germany, will not be able to help them or keep them from being expelled. In similar cases, we learned from Thomas that family members can and might decide to leave the country along with the person that is affected by the, the order to get expelled, just, you know, practically to be able to stay together. But they don't have to leave, so they're not directly affected by the decision. They can't stay if they want to. But the question is, do they really have a choice if, if they want to be together, if they want to stay together? We have said it before, and it has just been piling up, these complexities and, and challenges. So either it is you leave Germany and the European Union, or you stay in that confusing waiting position. You cannot become a resident, you can't work, you can't move across borders freely, and all the while, you have to even pay to stay in that entire insecure limbo situation, and your family members can't really help you to stay either. Plus, let's not forget, this is after they have served their punishment in prison. And these future problems and challenges that EIA and Anwar R might face do not count towards possible mitigating circumstances that the judges in Koblenz could consider when sentencing them. All in all, Naya, this might sound a bit dramatic, but it seems to me that this would be kind of the end. From all aspects, it doesn't seem like there are many opportunities for them here. It's a dead-end street. Yeah, I agree. 
But what if Anwar R in the final pleas would plead guilty of the crimes that he's accused of, and then in an odd turn of events, when the decision comes, actually wins this case? I mean, it's, it, it seems very unlikely, but still, just to think this through for a second here, and looking at the topic of today's episode, what, what would happen then? That probably won't happen, though you never know. But if we want to explore the answer, then as Thomas told us, if he's found not guilty, then he has every right that a refugee would be entitled to. To start with, the simple fact that he would keep his asylum status. He could start a procedure towards becoming German. He can and might ask for compensation for the time that he's been in detention during the trial. In other words, if the court ends up deciding that he is innocent in the sense of the indictment, then his life continues to be the same as before the trial started. And speaking of that, what comes to mind right now is how he asked for protection from people that he claimed were threatening him. Remember early on in the trial, Anwar Ard's lawyer told the court about his fear of Syrian intelligence officers in Berlin, that there were members of the Mukhabarat observing and following him, and that he was quite sure of it because he knows how they operate and move from his decade-long own experience, and he was sure they were plotting to kidnap and kill him. And I was thinking, if he was not found guilty, would he want to ask for protection again? Would he be able to get it? But Thomas told us that this might be almost impossible, as asking for protection requires a lot of investigation, and it has to be a really dangerous situation for people who require protection. All this is quite thought-provoking. Another thought worth pausing on is, in light of everything that we've talked about in today's episode, you know, should criminals actually keep on paying a price for what they've done and have already served time for in prison? Does their punishment really end after prison? And if it doesn't, is that really fair? We have talked to Thomas about this, and he had an opinion about this very thought. That is a really big ethical problem. And I think it's a legal problem too, but uh, nobody really takes it serious. Um, that someone who has done something wrong and has to go to prison, the criminal court decides how long he has to go to prison until his doing is uh, balanced. Afterwards, just a foreigner will get a second sentence, second decision about his doing that says you will be expelled then too. That is, a, in the opinion of most people, a second conviction, a second sentence. And that is not really in accordance to our constitution and everything you have in mind, because you will be handled differently just because you're a foreigner. You have done the same thing like a German, but you will be handled very differently. The German go to jail, you go to jail, but you have to face another uh, decision afterwards. And this is something what is not really, well, what is not really fair. And we fight against this, not in the case of Anwar Ayat. That is clear, they can face more than one sentence, in my opinion, when they have done these things. But uh, for many other people, it's worth to fight against this nonsense that they make different decisions just because someone is a foreigner. Uh, and well, 
that is something um, that is really a decision for lifetime for a lot of people um, and it's a worse thing than the criminal sentence because it means lifetime you can't come back and this is really a cruel thing Branch 251 is a 75-podcast production. Today's episode was hosted by Naya Skaf and myself, Fritz Streif. It was written and produced by Salim Salame, co-produced and edited by myself, Fritz Streif, with editorial help from Naya Skaf, Pauline Peg, and Hannah Elitami. Sound and mixing from Pauline Peg. We want to especially thank Thomas Oberhäuser for giving us his time and explaining the vast complexities of German residence and asylum law. Support for our podcast comes from German Federal Foreign Office Funds that are provided to us by IFAS Civic Funding Program. <laughs>